Welcome to the Creative Agency Account Manager Podcast with me, Jenny Plant from Account Management Skills Training. I'm on a mission to help those in agency client service keep and grow the existing client relationships so their agency business can thrive. Welcome to episode 25. This one's for you if you are looking to create more rapport with your clients and build trust. Dr. Mark Goulson is going to talk to us about why empathy is so powerful and why people are afraid to empathize in business. He's also going to talk about how you can get your clients to trust you. And also you'll be asking yourself, are you a plusser, a minuser or a topper? Let's go over to Mark now. Well, today I'm absolutely thrilled that Dr. Mark Gorston has joined me. He is a very sought after business advisor, consultant, coach, speaker, and psychiatrist. He has such an impressive background. He's the author of several best selling books, including Just Listen, that I'm holding in my hand here and in the background with Mark, Talking to Crazy, and Real Influence and Get Out of Your Own Way, all best selling books. He hosts the extremely popular podcast, My Wake Up Call with Dr. Mark Galston, where he's interviewed some prominent figures like. Like radio and TV host Larry King, leadership guru Ken Blanchard. He's also a regular LinkedIn Live host called No Strings Attached. And he's written for Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Business Insider, Huffington Post, Psychology Today, and many more. He's the inventor of surgical empathy. And this is a process for getting through to anyone by going to their psychological core and unlocking what's holding them back. He was a UCLA professor of psychiatry for over 25 years and a former FBI and police hostage negotiation trainer. So I'm honored to have him on the show today. Today. I'm very grateful to Marcus Kalki, our mutual friend who's put us in contact. Mark, welcome to the show. That's a lot to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is very impressive, Mark. Can you help me fill in some gaps there? You know, tell me a bit more about yourself in your own words and how you became an expert in listening and getting through to others. Well, I think it started because after my training, I was really fortunate. I trained at UCLA in psychiatry. And I had a mentor who was one of the pioneers in the area of suicide prevention, a fellow named Dr. Ed Schneidman. And if you look him up, you'll see they're almost synonymous. And he was a main referral source for me when I started out. And something that was my good fortune is that I had applied for a fellowship. And just before I finished training, the fellowship was canceled. So I just shrugged my shoulders, thought, well, I'll go out there and see if anyone will come and see me. But I had the good fortune because when I would be with patients, yes, I had a protocol, but I didn't necessarily have to report to anyone. And what I noticed in my suicidal patients, and I had a fair number of them because Dr. Schneidman would refer them to me, is I learned to not just look into their eyes, but listen into their eyes. And increasingly, I got this feeling that what they were saying in their eyes is you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. And if you look, basically, if you have a loved one or a teenager or a spouse and you look into their eyes, they're all screaming out in that. They're all screaming out, this hurts so much, I can't take it anymore. But what happens is they scare people. And what I realized is when I was checking boxes, it was really a way to protect myself. And what I realized is I listened into their eyes 
is they couldn't come to me. I had to go to where they were. So I'll share one anecdote, which really was one of many, but this was probably the most dramatic one. When I was early in my practice, I used to moonlight at a psychiatric hospital, which means I'd cover for other psychiatrists over weekend. I'd admit patients, I'd go up to the wards and I'd medicate and I'd write prescriptions. But sometimes you'd be awake for 24, 36 hours. And so on one weekend that happened. And on Monday, I came in to my office to see someone I'll call Nancy. Now, Nancy had made three or four suicide attempts before I was seeing her. She'd been in the hospital at times, one month, two months. Back then, you could stay in the hospital a long time. And I'd been seeing her for six months, and I didn't think I was helping her. As she'd come in, that was the longest she'd gone without an attempt or a hospitalization. But when she'd come into the office, if you're me, this would be Nancy. She wasn't exactly catatonic, but she was disconnected. So on this Monday, after not sleeping, there's Nancy in her characteristic pose. And I'm looking out at the room, and all the color turns to black and white. So I'm looking out a room, and it's black and white. And I thought, well, this is interesting. And then I got these chills, and I got cold. And I thought, I'm having a stroke or a seizure. So I'm a medical doctor. I'm a psychiatrist. So it wasn't rude because she wasn't looking at me. So I did a neurologic exam on myself. So I'm going like this. I'm looking at my fingers. I'm tapping my elbows. I'm going to see if I'm having a stroke or a seizure. And then I realized I wasn't. And then I had this crazy idea that I was looking out at the world through her eyes and that the world felt black and white and cold to her. So I just leaned into it. And the more I leaned into it, the worse it got. And because I was sleep deprived, I blurted something out that normally I wouldn't. I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to, to get out of the pain. And I thought, did I think that or did I say that? And I thought, I just gave her permission. I thought, I just blew it. And then she hesitantly looked at me and then she grabbed onto my eyes. I mean, she grabbed onto my eyes with her eyes and I thought she was going to say, thank you, I'm overdue. And I said, what are you thinking? And she looked at me and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of my pain. Maybe I won't need to. And then the color came back. The coldness went away. And I kept looking into her eyes. And I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you treatments and programs that you've already been through unless you ask for them. Because if I give you all those things, you'll nod politely, and then you won't do them, and you'll come back, and you'll tell me you weren't able to do them. Would that be okay? And she kept looking at me with a look that said, keep talking, keep talking, I'm intrigued. And I said, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to find you wherever you are, and I'm going to keep you company there, because you've been there alone too long at the worst times.
would that be okay? And then her eyes started to tear up and she started to heal. So you'd mentioned something called surgical empathy. And I just gave you an example of kind of what it looks like and what it feels like. And here's something I discovered about suicide. And if you're watching or listening in, you might relate to this. And other people don't get it. Death is compassionate to psychological pain that's unbearable. So death is compassionate to hopelessness that won't go away, which is why people who are feeling hopeless, helpless, worthless, useless, they attach to death as something to take the pain away. And what I've discovered with surgical empathy, what I did with Nancy, and what I'm now training people around the world to do is if they can feel felt by you, and if you've read my book, Just Listen, you'll know it's about how, how do you get people to feel felt by you? It's great to feel understood versus misunderstood, but boy, when someone feels felt and they feel safe, they lean into it because they don't feel safe or felt by anyone. And so I think what happens with surgical empathy is they let go of death as the way to relieve their pain and they grab on to feeling felt. So is any of this making any sense because you've been so patiently listening to me? I'm very conscious because I'm reading the book. Mark, I want to pick up on a couple of things. You say that you blurted it out. For me, in that moment, it obviously came very naturally to you what you needed to do with her to make that change. And obviously it impacted hugely. And that was a turning point for her. And I'm sure probably the first time that anyone's spoken to her like that, that she felt felt. So that was the first thing that I, I kind of picked up on. I also want to tell you that I've been listening to a lot of other podcasts. I've watched your LinkedIn live and you have this way with your voice that it's very soothing. And I actually felt quite emotional listening to your voice. So does that have a part to play when you want to get through to someone? Absolutely. In fact, something I will share with you and your viewers and listeners, I do a, a version of mediation and conflict resolution that uses surgical empathy. And tell me if you can picture this. Picture a group of people, a group of executives or board of directors. And I actually developed this working with couples who just hated each other. So picture this. There's a group or a couple individuals, they're in conflict. And what I do with them is I will say, pick three topics that you can't talk about without getting into an argument that need to be talked about and resolved. So they can usually come up with those. And then I'll say, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, well, it looks like we have agreement. We have agreement that you can't talk about those without arguing. And that's a good start. And I make sure, are we in agreement that those three topics need to be resolved? And they say, yes. They say, great. Now, would you also agree that when people are talking to and with people, we are making progress towards resolving those problems. Would you agree Is when people are talking to and with each other? Yes. Would you also agree that when anyone is talking over, down, or at another person, the progress stops? 
And what happens is whoever they're talking over, down, or add at starts to tense up and starts to want to react. Would you agree to that? Most people agree with that. And I say, great. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick those topics that you can't talk about. And I'm going to ask you, you parties, show me the way you need to talk about it so we can solve it. And that means show me how to talk to and with each other. And at the first sign someone is talking over, down, or at another person, I'm going to call a timeout because progress has stopped. And I'm going to take that person into another room, or if it's a Zoom, we'll do a, you know, we'll do a, a breakout session. And I'm going to find out what's going on with that person. And I'm going to talk them down from DEFCON 1 to DEFCON 5. And often they'll vent, but I'll let them vent. I'll say, what's really going on? No, I understand that. But what's really going? Why does it so matter to you that you have to get your way and you can't agree? And so they open up and they open up. And then I will coach them. I'll say, so show me when you go back the way you want to talk about it so you don't push people away. Because do you think that the way you're talking about it is going to make anyone want to agree with you? Even if you're right, who's going to want to agree with that? You know, you're reminding people of their abusive mom or their abusive dad. No one's going to want to agree with you. So let's practice that. And then we'll give it a try and do the best you can. Because, you know, if you get agitated, I'll bring you back here and we'll refine it. And we have all day. But can you see that approach? I love the approach. It's the how, isn't it? It's having agreement up front. How are we going to address it? And over at or down. That's the rules. So I love that because everyone understands the rules and then they can self-regulate, can't they? So I love that. Why do you think that we are so bad at listening and yet everyone thinks they're great listeners? Because the, the story you described before with the suicidal lady was you were first of all listening enough and then you started meeting her where she was, empathizing. So why do you think, we all think we're good listeners, but really we're not? Well, one of my favorite quotes comes from a, a British psychoanalyst named Wilfred Bion. You can look this up, Wilfred Bion, B-I-O-N. And he talked about listening and one of his quotes, and I think he was talking about presence. And basically his quote was, the purest form of listening is to listen without memory or desire. Because when you listen with memory, you have an old agenda that you're trying to plug the person into. When you listen with desire, you have a present or future agenda that you're trying to plug them into. But in neither case are you listening to where they're coming from or their agenda. And in my book, Just Listen, I use a bunch of acronyms to make something easier to remember. And I said, you want to be a pal in conversations and PAL stands for Purposeful, Agendaless Listening. Purposeful, Agendaless Listening. And I think one of the reasons people don't listen is because most people have an agenda. I wrote a, uh, a blog on why people are afraid to empathize, especially in the business world. And one of the reasons people are afraid to empathize in the business world is if I really find out where the other person's coming from, what's really important to them, what they care about, what they really need, and it doesn't match what I'm selling, 
if I'm going to be really showing that I'm of service and I care about them, they're not going to buy what I have. So I'm afraid to empathize and bring up something means I can't sell them what I have. But the problem is, if you're forceful, you maybe can push something through to someone who's intimidated by that. But boy, if it doesn't work out, or they feel that you've sold them too hard, you're not going to win many friends or influence too many people. No, and I completely agree with you. I mean, my audience is principally those managing client relationships on a day-to-day basis. It's their job, first and foremost, to listen to the client, to understand their needs, their business challenges, their problems. And whilst they don't have a selling agenda, it's certainly an agenda in their minds to want to help. How can I add value to this relationship? Regardless if it's with my products and services, or maybe, you know, I can introduce them to someone in my network or provide a piece of information that they will find useful, any trend or market insight. So what advice would you give to those account managers that are managing those client relationships that are going into a client meeting, trying not to have a specific agenda, but being really present Do you think, I mean, this is the feedback that I get, is in order to do that proficiently, you have to be flexible. And sometimes account managers lack the confidence to go in there without some set questions or some set agenda of some type. So what advice would you give to those maybe who are in that position? Well, here's something I'll share with you. I uh, Five of my books are bestsellers, pretty big bestsellers in Russia. And about a year and a half ago, I gave a presentation along with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman. He wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And it was he and a fellow named Joseph Pine who wrote, I think, The Experience Economy. Great people. And we all headline. And my talk to about a thousand Russian managers, probably account managers, leaders, a whole bunch of people. The title of my talk was Change Everything You Know About Communication. And what I said to them, and there's actually a video clip, I'll send that to you if you want to add a link to it. I will. Where I said to the audience, if I focus on what you're listening to, you're listening to me. And if I respond by giving you a bunch of bullet points, you will write them down. You'll try some of them. Most of them won't work. You'll say, it'll work for him. He's an expert. Maybe one or two will work. But if I have good stories and I'm a a good communicator, you'll give me your mind for an hour. And they're looking at me like I'm a little bit crazy. Uh, Maybe I am a little bit. And then I switched the tone of my voice. So they heard my tone, even though I was translated into Russian in real time. And I said, but if instead of focusing on what you're listening to and you're giving me your mind for an hour, if I focused on what you're listening for and I got it right without you telling me and I delivered on it, you'll give me everything. And this is what I do, you know, when I make presentations to some of your listeners or their companies, because it's often the same three questions. I'll say, let me see if I get what you're listening for. You're listening for something that will get you better measurable results. Because that's what you're judged on, is measurable results. 
And if you get better ones, you might get a promotion or raise. Uh, and what you're also listening for is a way to get those results that's less stressful and more effective because the way you're doing it now is stressful. You're all drinking too much. Your people are drinking too much. It's really out of control. And I asked them, you know, is that true? And they went, da, da. And then I said, and I think what you're most listening for is that I can give you tips or tactics that are immediately doable by you. And you don't have to buy a book because I haven't written this book yet. Still haven't. And there's no course that I'm trying to sell you into. So you're listening for tips and tactics that I can give you to accomplish that so you can get better measurable results that are less stressful. And if we do that, it will be worth the more than $500 in a day of your time that you gave to be here. Is that true? And they went, da, da. I said, come on, sit down, sit down, calm down. But that was focusing on what they were listening for. So if you're an account manager and you get a sense that the other person is smiling, but it's not a yes, they're being polite. They're smiling. They may not want to say they don't understand what you're talking about because you're using too much jargon. They're just smiling politely. But if you're more of a seasoned account manager, you'll know that smile is not a yes. They're trying to be polite because they've checked out. They just haven't gotten up and left. So, yeah, yeah. And then you might say, do you have any questions? Uh, and they might say, no, no, I, I, I think I heard what you say. And then you might get anxious. Well, can I share some of the other things we're doing? And that's really going to drive them away even more. And, and so here's a tactic and tip that you can use from our podcast today. So picture that scenario. You're talking to them and they're smiling, but you can tell they're not engaged. And what you say to them is, I'd like to pause for a minute. And they're going to wake up because it's like you called on the kid in the back of the classroom who was sleeping. What, 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 what? You say, I'd like to pause for a minute. And, go, huh? and then you say, I went to the beginning of our conversation. And they're listening because they've never heard this before. They'll go, huh? Yeah, I went to the beginning of our conversation and it was kind of like this. You know, you came here looking for something or whatever. I came here wanting to sell you something. And you were looking for and listening for something that we haven't covered. And can you tell me what it was when you came here, when you were listening for something or looking for something that we haven't covered? Because we have a little time left and we might be able to address it. You know, if I can't handle it, there may be people I know who can help you. Excellent question. And so you get them to open up. And what you then want to do is get them from being withdrawn into riveted in attachment to you. And then when they tell you whatever it is, you say, I'm so glad you said that. Oh, I wish we had started with that at the beginning. Can you tell me why that's important to you? And then they're opening up further. And you say, oh, I'm so glad you're telling me that. It all makes sense. Then here's a question you have to get advanced in this to be comfortable. I'm comfortable with it, but I'm a psychiatrist. And the next question is, geez, you've told me what you were listening for, why it's important. You know, between you and me, what's really going on? And they're going to go, what? And then you say, yeah, between you and me, you know, why are we doing this? Because you and I have much more in common than either of us have with our CEOs, our CEOs, they go to another company, they're going to get a parachute. 
you and I are just trying to make a living. I'm trying to sell stuff. You, you have to buy stuff that doesn't backfire. You know, we're like, we're peers. So what's really going on? And they may pause, but they've never heard a conversation like this. They're going to be intrigued. And then you say, can I share with you the answer I get from other people in your position? They're going to be curious. And then you say, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I've spoken to others. And when they opened up to me, and it was clear that we were peers, both of us just trying to make a living, more than a couple of them have said, I need a win. And when I've asked them, what does that mean? They said, you know, you get paid for selling things. I get paid according to my judgment and what I buy. And I bought some things that didn't really work out. And my boss kind of questioned my judgment. You know, what I need are some wins where my boss doesn't question my judgment. And then what I suggest to people, and you may lose the sale, but win a relationship for life. What I'd suggest you say to the person is, let's forget what I'm selling. Tell me not only what a win would look like, tell me what would cause your boss to get a promotion and then give you one. Wow. Yeah, think of what's going to get your boss a promotion or a raise. And if you're instrumental in helping them get a promotion or a raise, and they're someone who shares their good fortune, they're going to give one to you. So let's brainstorm what that might be. Mark, this is this is gold, really is. I mean, a lot of what you've just said, it's about breaking down those barriers, isn't it? And you can see when you play out that scenario, the depth of connection that you would then establish with the client. And I feel that more and more, I'm seeing account managers communicating with their clients through email, for example, too much through email and not enough verbal. Obviously, we're in a remote working situation currently, but still on video and on telephone. And I don't know why they don't approach conversations more in that way. And I suppose I'm going back to confidence levels and whether that's experience confidence or worrying about the outcome. Are there any tips or strategies you can share around, you know, how you would overcome the internal maybe dialogue you have? You know, they're not interested in that. How dare you speak to them like that? That kind of voice. Well, I think, see, I live truly to be of service to other people. I don't sell anything. And when I'm with people, they quickly realize that I am here to help them be as successful, have the best life possible. And I'm not about money. And I'll tell you what happens, at least in my stratosphere, but it's taken years to develop this kind of trust from people. I've discovered that when you give value, true value to people who are very wealthy, and you don't hit on them for anything, they appreciate you because they were able to lower their guard because you weren't grabbing at them. And then they'll come back because I don't ask for anything. And they'll say, well, how can I compensate you? And something that I learned from my good friend, Marshall Goldsmith, a big executive coach in the world is, well, you know, you, you can pay me what you think it's worth, or you can donate to a foundation that I'm connected to to stop teen suicides. Uh, it's up to you. 
Now I understand when you're young, I can't do that. I got to get my numbers and I'm not at that level, but I, I'm, I'm throwing a lob into your future about what you might evolve into. That's really good advice. And your point of coming 100% from service is a good philosophy, no matter what level of experience you have, isn't it? Because if you go in there with no agenda and just think, I want to help, how can I help? And then you're fixed on the client, on solving the client's problem to understand it first and then think about how you can help. I think that's a general good philosophy to put your mindset into more of a kind of structured and focused way. Well, well, I'll tell you something. You know, we hear this term, the imposter syndrome. And what I've noticed is social workers, nurses, most doctors don't have the imposter syndrome because they're not selling something to their patients. They're trying to get them well. They have this higher calling. And I think the imposter syndrome in business is if you're selling something, you know you have to get your numbers. And so down deep, you know, I care more about getting my numbers than really being of service to them. And so I'm an imposter because when I say the words and when I say some of these lines, which if I hear it again, I'm going to tell the person, lose the line, what keeps you up at night? (laughs) I, I, I think that's a line that has come and gone. And what happens is people see through it that you've, that you've gone to some training that teaches you to ask certain questions that sound like you care when you don't. And I'll share something with you that I used to call the Miracle on 34th Street sale. So some years ago, I would meet with people and sometimes I would fly to meet them or it would take me several hours to drive there. And pretty quickly, I would focus on what's truly important to them and critical to their success. And then when we surface that, I would sometimes say to these prospects, I'd say, my advice to you is don't hire me or buy my product or service. This is after taking three hours to get there and they go, what? I said, I just focused on what will get you a raise or make you successful. And there's at least two or three things that come to mind for me. And they're not what I do and they're not my product or service, but I know two or three people. You know, if you don't have them internally, I know two or three people, you know, you probably should talk to and get those things taken care of. And I remember one, I guess, account manager said, let me get this straight. You drove all the way here. We had a pretty good conversation and I might've hired you and you told me not to hire you. And I said, that's right. He said, why did you do that? I said, because as I got a clear idea of what would get you a promotion or a raise, what I realized is you needed to do other stuff before you used me. And I just sold you on something much, much bigger than my service or product. And he said, what's that? I just sold you on a unicorn. I just sold you on trusting me, which means I can call you back at any time as I continue to be focused on your success and come up with things that might help it. Lovely. That's such good advice. And I think it's really sort of setting the tone for what's going to make you successful in an account management role, really. You describe in the book the four levels of talking and listening, which I thought was a lovely way to understand the different levels. Do you mind spending a couple of minutes talking about that part? Sure. When we're talking, when we're in a conversation, 
with another person. We can talk over them, at them, to them, with them. Over, at, to, or with. And the way you know you're speaking to them is when you talk over them, they're insulted. If I gave a talk to a group and they weren't martyrs and there was a break and I was talking over all of them, if there's a break in the middle of my talk, they shouldn't come back and hear the rest of it. If you're talking at them, people will either be scared and they'll hunker down because you're reminding them of some bully in their life, or they'll stick their chin out at you like, you can't talk at me that way. If you're talking to them, they'll nod. This is business as usual. You've addressed their needs and it looks like it's going to go forward. But the gold standard is when you talk with them and when you talk with them, you'll see that they they relax their shoulders because they can lower their guard and they feel safe. And it's when you talk with people that things get done. As we mentioned earlier about the mediation approach of talking to and with, people lean towards each other. I'll share another exercise, which you haven't heard about. I've been rather busy in COVID. I've written two books. So one of them is called Why Cope When You Can Heal, about how to heal from trauma, not just recover from it. And the second one, which is coming out tomorrow, is called a Trauma to Triumph, a Roadmap for Leading Through Disruption and Thriving on the Other Side. And in that book, I talk about the Hoover technique. And if you practice this once a day with one conversation that you want to go well, if you practice it for a week and make it a habit, it will change all your relationships. And you've done a very good job, by the way. So HUVA stands for, what you do is you have a conversation with someone, and afterwards you rate yourself from their point of view on a scale of one to 10, one being lousy, 10 being great. H is, from their point of view, how much did they feel heard out by you? Did you interrupt them? Did you try to top them? Did you try to one-up them? How much did they feel heard out? Two, how much did they feel understood? And the way you show you understood them is you ask them, say more about that. You're curious about what they're saying. V, how much did they feel that you valued what they said? They remark and they see the application of it and how it could be valuable. And then A is how much did they feel you added value to what they said? I will tell you, you get a 10, 10, 10 score. 10, 10, 10, 10. No, because I, I felt hurt out. You know, these are not short answers and you're letting me go. I felt understood by you because you dipped in and you made sense of what I was saying back from me and your viewers and listeners. I certainly felt valued by what you said. And then you certainly added value by being able to pause and genuinely see the application of it. So you got a good score. Thank you so much. I, coming from you, that's a massive phrase for me. Thank you so much. I want to pick up on the you. You said, you know, I rate myself on being understood. You know, did I say things like, tell me more about that? What else? What else? I'm finding, Mark, that when I have, I personally have conversations sometimes. Say, for example, I say, oh, I went to Greece on holiday last year. The person I'm speaking to said, I went to Greece as well. And we went here and we went to this taverna. It was great. And all of a sudden, I'm talking about their holiday. Now, I've used this example, but I'm sure the person that 
wants to empathize with me and say, me too. I went to Greece. So what's happening is I was fortunate. I've had eight mentors. Unfortunately, they've all died. The last one was Larry King. I had breakfast with him for two years before COVID every morning with a group of our breakfast group. And I was a student of Larry King and he was just busy being Larry King. You know, he's an incredibly curious person. And I said, Larry, I just discovered your magic because I like to deconstruct how people do things so other people can do it. I said, Larry, when you do interviews, you're a pluser, you're not a minuser, and you're not a topper. So you're pluser, meaning you're always adding to what the other person's saying, not your own personal anything. You don't give opinions, you don't give advice, but you're always having them go deeper. You're, you're very curious, uh, and that's a way of, of being a pluser. So why did you do that? Why the green hair? Without judgment, you do it without judgment. You shot a lot of kids, why'd you do that? No judgment. And you're not a minor, sir. You don't jump down their throat, you don't hit them with a gotcha. So people love to be interviewed by Larry King. And you're not a topper. And see, what you were mentioning is you'll say, I went to Greece. And someone else will say, oh, we did too. We saw all the islands. Plus, we took a cruise and we made it over to such and such. So that's being a topper. So that's another exercise you can ask yourself. Was I a pluser, which is valuing and adding value? Was I a pluser or was I a minuser or was I a topper? I love how you create models for everything. I do that too. And I think it's a way for everyone to remember these things, these principles. So thank you for this. This is amazing. I've been taking a million notes. Mark, tell me, in your career, what has touched you the most? Because you've helped, I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of people throughout your life. Can you talk to us about a scenario where it really has impacted you personally the most, getting through to someone? Well, I think I share the scenario with Nancy. I mean, that was kind of a watershed thing. I, I knew it was helpful listening into people's eyes, but I listened into her heart, which had grown cold from depression and suicide. But I'll tell you, you know, there is a backstory. One of the things that caused me to look into people's eyes, and I'll share this story, before Nancy, I remembered when I was in training, I was called to see a patient who had been put into restraints, and I was called to okay the restraints on their arms and legs and put them on antipsychotic medication because they were pulling at their IVs, they were pulling at a respirator tube that was on them, and they were kicking. And the doctor said, just go up there and okay the order. So I go up there and we'll call him Mr. Jones. And I go into the room and he can't talk because he has a tube in his throat. And he's going, ah, and I said, what is it? And his eyes are like saucers. And I said, what is it? And they said, he's just psychotic. And I kept talking and I gave him a pencil to write something and his hands were tied down and he just scribbled. And I thought, well, maybe they're right. And I said, look, you're pulling at the IVs, you're, you're kicking you're pulling at the respirator, and we had to put your arms and legs down. And I'm going to give you something to help you sleep. And then, you know, when you know when you're rested, we'll take everything off. So a day later, the doctors paged me, and they said, "Mr. Jones is up. He's sitting in bed. He's off the respirator, and he told us to page you." So I go into his room, and he looked into my eyes, and he said, "Pull up a chair." So I pull up a chair 
And then he kept looking at me and he said, what I was trying to tell you is that a piece of the respirator tubing was broken and was stuck in my throat. Wow. And you do know that I will kill myself before I go through that again. Do you understand me? And my eyes just watered up and I said, I'm so sorry. So sorry. I understand. So it's events like that that caused me to say, I got to do more than check boxes and, you know, make sure I'm asking all the appropriate questions. And what I've shared with you, you know, when you're talking to an account manager and it doesn't look like it's going well, my version for you who are listening in, they're listening for and looking for something that you haven't covered. And so give them the chance to bring it up. Love it. Thank you so much. Honestly, Mark, this has been revelatory and absolutely so valuable for people out there thinking about evaluating how well they are listening and getting through to other people. So I want to be respectful of your time. How can people reach you, Mark, and learn more about you and read your books? What's the best place to go? Well, if you go to Amazon, you'll see, I guess I have nine books there now. So you have Amazon UK. If you go to markgoulston.com, I blog a lot and I'm just sort of a content maniac. I have a podcast called My Wake Up Call, Wake Up's One Word. And I speak to thought leaders, change agents from around the world. I spoke with Margaret Heffernan. She's in the UK. She's one of the top TEDx speakers. She was wonderful. And then I have something on LinkedIn called No Strings Attached, where I interview my guests and I say, just give nuggets and tips with no strings attached that meet these criteria for my viewers and listeners. I never would have thought of that. That could work. I could do that today. Such a lovely concept, honestly. I'm going to include all of those links in the podcast notes. So, Mark, thank you again so much. I'm absolutely honoured that you came on and I've really, really enjoyed it. You've had me riveted for an hour now. So thank you so much. Well, you could sell Hoover vacuum cleaners, H-U-V-A. You did a great job. Thank you, sir. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that chat with Mark and have come away with a few ideas for how you could perhaps empathize more with your clients. If you would like to receive a weekly newsletter with tips for account managers and sound bites from podcasts and news and events, then come over to my website, accountmanagementskills.com, and you can sign up to receive a weekly newsletter. Until the next time, see you on the next one.